One of the most famous phrases ever penned by men is the assertion that all people have been endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words, of course, uh, are quoted often. They come from the Declaration of Independence. And uh, we treasure those words, right? Most of us would give a, a hearty amen to those words. And yet, as Christians, we know something more than what those words say, which is that there is no true happiness without godliness. And there's no godliness without true life and true liberty. And that all of those things are found only in Christ. So that's why we can say um, that Romans chapter 6, which is where we'll be again this morning, that Romans chapter 6 is something like the believer's declaration of independence. We don't declare our own independence, but God has declared our independence from sin because God has won that independence for us in Christ. In Christ, we have real life, eternal life. In Christ, we have true liberty, freedom from sin, freedom to obey God, and freedom to pursue godliness which is where true happiness or true joy is found. So as we look at Romans uh, chapter 6 this morning, I want you to think of it in those terms. Think about what this chapter has to say about life, what it has to say about liberty, what it has to say about the pursuit of godliness. Let me read for us uh, verses 5 through 11, which will be our focus this morning, of Romans chapter 6. Paul says, For if we have been united with him, that is with Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul has been telling us in this chapter, well, he's been answering for us a question, a question that Paul probably heard over and over as he preached in synagogues all throughout the Roman Empire. That question was, Paul, this gospel that you're preaching... This story that you're telling about how sin increased, right? But grace abounded all the more, that people are justified by faith apart from their works when they trust in Christ. 
Isn't that whole message that you're telling the kind of message that is going to convince people that they should just keep sinning so that they could get more grace, right? Why not, why not continue in sin or that grace may abound? And Paul has been spending this chapter teaching us why that is really a foolish question. Why the answer to that question is an emphatic no. No way should believers think that the gospel means they can keep living in sin, and that would be a good idea in order to get more grace. And the reason why Paul says that's a ridiculous idea, a foolish idea, is that uh, we have all died with Christ. And so in verses 3 and 4, he talks about how our baptism pictures for us, teaches us, that when we were saved, when we were converted... We were joined to Christ, we were united to Him, and part of what that means is, since we have been united to Christ, we have been united to His death. We have joined Him in His death. We have died with Christ, and we have likewise been raised with Christ so that we can walk in newness of life, so that we can live and act differently. And our baptism teaches us about that. If we understand what baptism symbolizes, what it's for, then we would know that we have joined Christ in his death and will also join with him in his resurrection. And that's what he reiterates in verse 5, right? If we have been united with him in a death like his, right? So his death was unique, right? We're not repeating that, but we have joined him in a sense in his death, If that's true, he says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So if we've been united to Christ, if we've been joined to Christ by faith, which we have, if we are believers, then the first thing that means, Paul says, is that we share in Christ's death. Because we share in his death, we've died with him, been buried with him. If that's the case, then surely we don't only share in half of the gospel. And the two central gospel events are the death and resurrection of Christ. And so if we know we've shared in his death, then surely we will also share in a resurrection like his. And the Bible says that that is certainly the case, that we will, at Christ's return, be raised from the dead as he was raised from the dead. As Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, at Christ's return, all who belong to Christ will be raised from the dead to live with him. And Paul is saying here in verse 5, this is how we know that the end of verse 4 is true. Right? The end of verse 4 says that we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 5 begins with that little word for, which means because... How do we know we're going to walk, that we should walk now in newness of life? Because, just like we've shared in his death, we will share in his resurrection in the future. And that promise of future resurrection bleeds into the present so that even now we share in that resurrection in a spiritual sense as we will share in it in the future in a physical sense. As our bodies will be raised At the return of Christ, so now our spirits, which were dead, we were dead, spiritually speaking, Ephesians 2 says, in our sin, we have been raised spiritually from the dead to have new life, life in Christ, 
in anticipation of the day when our bodies will be raised from the dead. So that means the promise of future resurrection that Paul's talking about in verse 5, that promise of future resurrection is not merely about the future, it's also about the present. John connects these in 1 John 3 as well. He says that if we are living with the hope of seeing Jesus face to face and being like Him at His return, then right now we will be purifying ourselves. We will be becoming more like Christ. We'll be becoming uh, more and more holy, more and more godly as we anticipate the day when we'll be perfectly like Christ. In a similar way, Paul is saying here, because we will share in the resurrection in the future, there's a sense in which we already share in it now as we have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. But this is important, right? Because we often think about the gospel mainly as something that secures our future. Right? So I, I became a Christian, I turned from my sin, I trusted in Jesus, and that means in the future I get to go to heaven, I don't have to worry about uh, hell and judgment and all that, my sins have been forgiven, and so everything is going to be okay in the future. The death and resurrection of Christ have secured that for me. That is true. But we often leave out, and what Paul is emphasizing in this chapter is that those events, Jesus' death and resurrection, not only secure our salvation for the future, they also shape our lives right here, right now, in the present. We live crucified and resurrected lives now if we are in Christ. That's what this chapter is about. So he goes on in verse 6 and 7 to explain a little more fully what it means that we have been crucified with Christ, that we have died with Christ. Why is that important? What is the significance of that? What, what does that change about the way I live right now? More than you might think. In verse, in verse 6 he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Christ. So who you were before you met Jesus, right? That's your old self. When you were in Adam, right? When you were stuck in sin, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, when you were following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air and all that that Paul says in Ephesians 2, when that's who you were, that old self has been crucified. Who you were before has been pronounced dead, is no more. We know that to be true, Paul says. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ, and there was a purpose in that. In order that, he says in verse 6, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So all that was wrapped up with all the ways that we sin, Right? Most, of the, most of that through our bodies. All of that who we were, all that former identity, all of that former way of living, all that body of sin has been nullified, has been brought to nothing. It's crucified, dead, and gone. Right? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And there's another purpose. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we, our old self was crucified. Our old life Our old identity has been put to death so that who we were would not 
define us, would not characterize us, would not control us anymore, and so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, you might think, was I, was I really a slave to sin? I mean, I know I sinned. I mean, I know I did things I wasn't supposed to do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have needed Jesus. I wouldn't have needed forgiveness. I wouldn't have called out for salvation. I mean, I know I did things I wasn't supposed to do, but was I really enslaved to sin? Or if you try to explain to somebody who's not a Christian and tell them, you know, well, you're, you, know you think you're a pretty decent person, but actually you're, a, you're enslaved to sin. They're probably going to say, no, I'm not. I do exactly what I want. But here's the thing about slavery. Slavery doesn't feel like slavery until it keeps you from doing something you want to do. Right? So, for example, if right now somebody said to you, you are forbidden from the rest of your life for, from ever leaving the state of Texas. Some of you would be like, okay, that's fine. I wasn't planning on going anywhere anyway. Right? <laughs> Just stay right here. Doesn't feel like slavery to me because I'm not leaving. But if they start closing in that boundary, you can't leave East Texas, you can't leave Russ County, you can't leave Minden, you can't leave your house. The narrower that boundary gets, the more you begin to feel like a prisoner, the more you feel like you've been enslaved because you want to be somewhere where they're telling you you can't be. Well, when you're not a Christian, you don't want to please God. You don't care about God. You want your life to be pleasant. You probably want to get along with people. You, you know, you, you have, you, but you want to do this and you want to do that. And you do pretty much what you want. And you're not concerned about whether or not God likes it or not. You just do what you want to do. So it doesn't feel like slavery. You are in bondage to sin. You can't stop sinning. But it doesn't feel like slavery because you like sinning. But once God begins to convict you of your sin and you begin to get sick of your sin and you begin to want to get loose of that sin, then it begins to feel like slavery because you find out pretty quick you can't stop on your own. You can't change your life on your own. You can't begin to love God and you can't begin to obey the Bible with joy and gladness. You can't do that on your own. The only way... You can get free from the hold that sin has on you is if you call out to Jesus and beg for mercy and he forgives you and pardons you and gives you new life and you're joined to him by faith and guess what? All that you were dies and now you rise as somebody who's free. You died with Christ, Paul saying, so that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. And the reason why it works that way is explained in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Right, so once you die, once you die with Christ, that's how you get set free. Right, there's a lot of things, I mean, there's a, you know, a lot of analogies you can come up with this. Uh, there's a lot of things that you don't get free from until you die or somebody dies. Right, like later in chapter 7, Paul will use the example of marriage. Right? And he'll say, you know, if you're married to somebody, um, you're married to them until one of you dies. Now, if your spouse dies, you're free to get remarried. Right? And there's, there's no law against that. But as long as your spouse is alive, if you start acting like you're married to somebody else, that's a problem. 
Uh, but once your spouse is dead, then you're no longer bound to the law of marriage. Uh, all kinds of things that you don't get free from, you're not released from until you die or somebody else dies. And Paul's saying, because you have died, now the sin that held you captive, that power right, that controlled you, even when you didn't realize it, You've now been released from that. You've been set free from that so that you are no longer enslaved to sin. Which means you can tell sin no. You now have the ability, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit who's at work in you, you can say no to temptation. You can say no to sin in ways that you couldn't before. You might have been able to sort of rearrange your sin before. Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. But then you start doing this other thing over here, right? Or you, you know, you stop this thing, not really because you think it's sin, but because you think it's kind of a bad habit. You don't really want to be that kind of person. But you're still not living to please God, glorify God, honor God, and anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin, the Bible says. So, I mean, you cleaned up your life a little bit, but you're still not living a righteous, holy, godly life. But now you can Because now you've been set free. So exercise your liberty. right? Exercise your freedom. As Americans, we love the liberty that we have living in this country. And we celebrate that and we exercise that. What about your Christian liberty? What about your freedom from sin? That's a much more priceless treasure even than the liberty we have uh, as people who live in the United States. Right? This, is, this is liberty from sin. This is liberty from a slavery that dominated your life. Paul says, you have been set free, so live like people who are free. That's why it's important that you have died with Christ, been joined to Christ in His death. Right, so when you, um, when you are tempted to sin, right, when, you, when there's something that Satan is using to lure you, to entice you, and maybe it's something that you used to not be able to get loose from, you used to not be able to say no before you became a Christian, what do you do when Satan puts that lure back in front of you? You just say, I don't have to do that. I, I didn't have the ability to say no before. I mean, I, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't. I mean, I'm still accountable. I'm not not making excuses, but I just I didn't have the power to resist that temptation. But now I don't have to do that. I don't have to say yes to that. I don't have to give in to that because I'm a new creature. I'm a new creation. I've been set free, and I am walking away from this. I don't want anything to do with that anymore. That's what you now have the power to do in Christ, because you have died with Christ. Then in verse 8, he moves toward explaining more about what it means that we will live with Christ, that we'll share in his resurrection. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So see how he keeps coming back to this. He keeps coming back to this idea that Jesus' death and resurrection both shape our lives and our identities. We share in them both. And both of them ought to shape the way that we live, the way that we think. Right? So if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We will be resurrected. We will share in His resurrection life. 
And then he says, verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is why we know that we will share in his resurrection. We will share in his resurrection because his resurrection was not resuscitation. Right? Like he was kind of dead, you know, pronounced dead, but brought back to life for a time. No, that's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus was really and truly dead, but then he was resurrected. He was raised never to die again. Death has no hold on him, no authority over him. He will never die again. He will live forever. And so that's why we are certain that as we have shared in his death, we will share in his life because no one is going to stop his life from continuing, which means no one can stop his life from becoming our life. From us sharing in his resurrection. So he's no longer subject to death. And there's more to that too in verse 10. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So Jesus' death was not like anybody else's death. We know that, right? Part of the reason why it was not like anybody else's death is because Jesus died for sin that was not his own. He had no sin of his own to die for. But he took our sin upon his shoulders and he died for sin, for our sin. And Paul says here, died to sin once for all, meaning his death took care of, forgave, pardoned, got rid of that sin that he died for. So it no longer has any hold on him as he was bearing it for us. And it no longer has any hold on us. We have been set free from sin because he has died for our sin once for all. And now that he has died to deal with sin, now he says at the end of verse 10, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So he's died to deal with sin. Now he lives to God, lives to glorify and please the Father, just as we are commanded to do. So, um, Paul tells us all of this, right? He tells us all of this because he wants us not only to think rightly about Jesus, to believe that he died and rose, to believe that he died for sin, to believe that he'll never die again. He wants us to understand those things. But with those things, he wants us to think rightly about ourselves now that we are in Christ, He wants us to make the connection. If this is true of Jesus, and I'm in Jesus, then what does that mean about me? If Jesus died for sin once for all, then what does that mean about my relationship to sin? It means I'm free. If Jesus rose from the dead never to die again, what does that mean about me? That means I have been given a share in his life that lasts forever, And I'm going to be raised from the dead to live with him in a new heavens, a new earth, eternally. He wants us to think about how these things apply to us. In fact, that's what he does, especially in verse 11. This is where he sort of drives home what we're supposed to do with all this. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Now, I want you to notice in particular that word consider. What does it mean to consider something? There's a couple different ways we use this word, but the way it's being used here is the way we use the word when we uh, say we are counting something as something, or we decide how to think about something. So, for example, um, if somebody says something to you that could be interpreted different ways, and you say, I consider what you just said an affront, a personal attack. You might not admit it that way, but that's the way I'm interpreting that. The way I'm thinking about what you just said is you meant that to hurt me. That's, That's how Paul is using the word consider here. This is how you reckon these things. This is how you think about these things. This is how you interpret these things. So Paul is saying that how you think is a significant part of how you live the Christian life. Right, when he moves to application here, I've been talking all this kind of heady stuff about being united to Christ and his death and resurrection and dying to sin and freedom from sin and all this stuff. And when I drill down to how now should you live, the first thing Paul says is, here's how I want you to think about this. Here's how I want you to think about yourselves. Here's how I want you to reckon yourselves, consider yourselves. All right, so, One of the reasons why Paul does that, one of the reasons why Paul says it's so important for us to think about ourselves a certain way is because so much of uh, what we call spiritual warfare is something that happens in the mind. So much of how Satan tempts us and lures us and tries to ensnare us happens in our minds. That's where it starts. Right? So one of the things that Satan will do is he will try to convince you that sin is inevitable. Uh, he, will, he will whisper to you in your mind as you're facing some kind of temptation. You're deciding, trying to decide whether or not to click on that thing online you know you're not supposed to click on, or you're trying to decide whether the way your spouse just offended you is worth you yelling about, or whatever the thing is. Right? What he will whisper to you in your ear is, you can resist for a little bit, but we all know eventually you're going to do it. Eventually you're going to click it. Eventually you're going to yell. Eventually you're going to snap. Eventually you're going to give in to this or that or whatever. So if we all know that you're eventually going to give in, why not just go ahead and give in now? What's the point of fighting? He wants you to think that sinning is inevitable. right? And so what Paul wants us to think instead is, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, which means sinning is not inevitable. I don't have to do that. I don't have to yell, I don't have to click, I don't have to do whatever the thing is that I'm being tempted to do. I don't have to do that. I have been set free. Satan, you have no power over me. Sin has no power over me. I don't have to give in. I can resist and you will have to leave. And leave me alone. Alright, so I I mean, it's... Satan wants you to think that resisting temptations like playing Alabama in college football, right? You just give up, right? Because everybody knows you're going to lose. That's the temptation. There's just no way. We've lost so many times. I've given in so many times. 
who am I, what, who am I fooling, right, to think that this time I'm not going to? Paul says, that's not a foolish way to think. You have been set free. You are dead to sin. Think of yourself that way. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm not who I was. I don't have to do that. I don't have to live that way. I have been set free, and I'm not going to give in. Think about it that way. Tell yourself those things. The battle that you have to fight begins in your mind. If you can't, if you can't get loose from sin in general, and, and let me just say, like we all have things that we struggle with more than other things. Right? Even as Christians, there are things that Satan knows our weaknesses, right? Better than we know them ourselves. And there are things that we struggle against for years and years and years, right? But if you just can't get loose from sin, period, like you just know that you are, you are stuck and your life is a mess and you know you need something to break, you need something to change. Paul is telling you here in this chapter, this is how you get free. It's in Jesus. It's in Christ who died and rose for sinners. You have to call out to him. You have to trust in him. Only in Him can you be set free. Only in Him can you be given new life. Only in Him can you experience this death and resurrection and have this hope of future resurrection and future life with Christ. You have to trust in Him. And if you have trusted in Him, then you are free and you need to remind yourself that you're free and you need to preach to yourself that you're free so that when Satan tries to tell you otherwise... You have something to say in your own defense. You have something to say to help you resist that temptation. So consider yourselves dead to sin, he says. But not only that, consider yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Tell yourself, I'm a, I'm a new creation. I've been raised to walk in newness of life. I, I have been given the power and the privilege and the opportunity to live a life that pleases God. I'm not going to be perfect. God makes that clear as well. But I am different. I am new. I am changed. I have been saved. I do have spiritual life coursing in my veins, so to speak. I can live to God. I can praise Him. I can honor Him. I can glorify Him. I can love my family and my neighbors and my coworkers and serve my community and do all these things out of the joy that God has given me in Christ, out of the love that He has poured into my heart. And I can do all this by His grace and power in Christ in order to please Him, to live for Him. Because... I've been joined to Christ in His death and will share likewise in His resurrection. This is real life. The life that God gives. Life that lasts forever. And it is only found in the crucified and risen Christ. This is real liberty. Real freedom. The freedom from sin. Freedom to live the way God designed us to live. Not freedom to do whatever I want but freedom to want what God wants me to want. Freedom from sin is real freedom. And real happiness, real joy, is found in the pursuit of godliness. Living to the glory of God in Christ by the power of the Spirit 
And that only comes in the gospel of Christ, in his death and resurrection. That's what God has given us. That's how we must think of ourselves. That's the message we must preach to ourselves if we are going to live this life that God has given us. So let's pray and ask him to help us.